I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Happy New Year to everybody. This is a very special crossover episode of The Truth of the Matter. We're doing it with our friends from the Doorstep podcast at Carnegie Council. I want to welcome Tatiana Serafin and Nicholas Grosdev. Guys, you're the host of The Doorstep. I'm so glad you're here with The Truth of the Matter. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So excited. All right. We got to talk about Russia, Ukraine. I mean, the situation is just heartbreaking. You know, in some cases we see triumphs, but can you give us some perspective on what the current situation on the ground is in Ukraine? Sure. I think the first thing that everyone needs to understand is that this is a real war. This is not just a series of cool-looking videos circulating on social media of explosions and of power outages. This is a full-scale invasion by Russia of Ukraine with a full-scale conventional attack using all of the means at that disposal. And that includes, as we're seeing now, massive use of air and artillery power, primarily through ballistic missiles, to target cities, to target power, to target infrastructure, to really make parts of the country of Ukraine unlivable as a strategy to try to compel the Ukrainian government to uh, cede to Moscow's demands. The frontline fighting uh, that is occurring, particularly in Donbass, is reminiscent of scenes that were visible in Europe in the last century. Trench warfare, intense combat that is occurring. People are talking about uh, the fight for Bakhmut, which is uh, a city in Donbass, which is the core of the Ukrainian defensive position in that region, as a meat grinder that the level of casualties that both sides are experiencing are quite high, and that this is in fact a 20th century conventional war taking place in a 21st century environment when we were told only a few years ago that such a type of war in Europe was unthinkable, and if a war did happen, we would fight it on computers or it would be fought virtually. We're back to the realities of a war that veterans of World War I or World War II would not find unfamiliar. Tatiana, what are some of your observations? I agree wholeheartedly, obviously, especially the physicality of it. We were just talking before we went on uh, the fact that, you know, we can't even grasp what it is like not to have electricity or water or heat. And this is how Ukrainians are going into Orthodox Christmas, right? So part of Ukraine celebrates the holidays on the 25th of December, and, and many uh, Ukrainians will be celebrating on the 6th. We in America, we get upset if our internet goes down for five minutes or our cable TV is missing for an hour. Yeah, so that physicality is really important. But I want to say something to, to Nick's point that it is the physical war, it is on the ground war, but it is also a different kind of war. The war is, in fact, also being waged on the internet. What Zelensky and his team have been able to do with this war is revolutionize communications and revolutionize how we in the United States are experiencing this war. So, yes, it may seem remote to see a bomb, but what it has done is connect us as a global community to be part of this feeling of wanting to assist in the war and different constituencies, too. So it is people who remember war, you know, World War II, Vietnam, ramifications thereof, who are supporting it. You know, I have U.S. veterans speaking to me about their support of democracy and fighting 
there's also these other constituencies, people in the world of museums, right, who are appalled at the devastation of culture and cultural artifacts in Ukraine have rallied and given money to that cause. Environment, wildlife. There are people, you know, in that area of the world really appalled at what's happening in the Black Sea and the devastation to marine life. So it's so interesting. There are all these different touch points. And how are all these different constituencies able to be contacted? Well, Telegram, WhatsApp, Facebook, Okay, I'm not going to talk about Twitter, but in the early days before Elon Musk blew Twitter up, Twitter, right? Twitter spaces was huge for Ukrainians on the ground to get their voice out. And the diaspora here in the United States, the diaspora in the UK, now the diaspora in Europe, right, as a third of Ukrainians have moved into Europe, they are now the true voice of Ukraine, making sure that, for example, our U.S. Congress doesn't forget. Okay, let's not talk about what's happening at the Capitol. You can tell us more about the craziness. Just to be clear to our, our listeners, we're talking at 1.45 p.m. on January 5th. <laughs> we still don't have a Speaker of the House, I believe. But prior to that, you know, you had Pelosi effectively bringing Zelensky to Congress in person to make his case, right? How impressive is that? And that would never have happened without social media, without this huge influence campaign that Ukraine has absolutely succeeded at and that Russia is failing at. And without Zelensky himself being particularly good at optics. I mean, some of our most famous politicians have been actors and reality TV stars. This is an actor, a former comedian, and he is extremely good at optics. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants to wear the uh, green military t-shirt, right? Everybody from Macron to Trudeau, right? Everybody wants to look the part of someone who takes action. Right. And I think he looks the part. There's an absolute, to your point, difference in the visual aspect of him and Putin. Right. Screenshot both of them. And who are you going to rally around <laughs> if you knew nobody? Right. Or know nothing about this war. Put those two images up. And that's what we're seeing on social media. Well, and a lot of us in the United States, you know, my ancestors are from Kiev. So many people I know have ties to Ukraine. And of course, you know, we have a lot of antibodies to Russia and the former Soviet Union. So this is something we in America feel acutely. And, and as you point out, Tatiana, the Ukrainians have been expert at explaining that this is a shared goal, that this is important for the United States because this is on the doorstep of NATO. This is about alliances. What have you all sensed in this new year if anything has shifted, I mean, we just today, again, we're talking on, on the 5th of January, Putin ordered his military to implement a 36-hour ceasefire for Russian Orthodox Christmas. And, you know, Ukrainians are calling this hypocrisy. It really does feel a little bit absurd when you think about how Ukrainians are really suffering right now and don't have much. Well, it's interesting, of course, that they didn't declare a ceasefire last spring during Easter. So why Christmas now all of a sudden is more important uh, is quite interesting. But I think what you're seeing here is I think this call for a ceasefire reflects what Tatiana has already noted, that the Kremlin is losing the narrative around the world. 
It is trying to regain this sense that it is acting as it has always claimed to defend the rights of the people of the Donbass and to denazify Ukraine and remove threats to life and liberty. And of course, the way that the Russians have carried out the military operation, uh, it really stands in contrast to that. But what is also interesting and what we're seeing, and I think is just as dramatic as a shift, is that the other major Russian calculation, which is by this point in time, the Russians calculated that Western Europe, Central Europe would be in economic chaos, there would be massive energy shortages, there would be blackouts. You might recall the Russians issued an interesting social media propaganda video, which was supposed to show what Christmas in Europe in 2022 was going to look like, and it was blackouts and no gifts under the tree. And in fact, the United States and its allies have rallied in order to keep energy flowing to Europe. We just had the first U.S. shipment of liquefied natural gas arriving in Germany this week, which is a remarkable development. We have this remarkable development in Bulgaria, where basically Azerbaijan, Turkey, Greece, and Bulgaria, by working together, have been able to shift Bulgaria, which was getting 90% of its natural gas from Russia a year ago, to real diversification. And the, the, the use of the Russian energy weapon, which by this point in time, Putin and his team calculated would be creating economic and political chaos in Europe, and that would lead to a cessation of support for Ukraine, has not occurred. And in fact, we're seeing not just simply the United States, but European countries this week, France announcing another major tranche of military aid to Ukraine. And so that plan has also backfired, which was that you would cut off uh, Western support for Ukraine. Even with the shenanigans on Capitol Hill, it is also apparent that there is still a very strong bipartisan consensus to continue supporting Ukraine. So again, the, the Kremlin has made a series of miscalculations, and they're compounding them at this point. Let's talk about this recent missile strike in Makovka, is I believe the right way to pronounce it. So, you know, this resulted in the highest number of Russian soldier deaths acknowledged since the beginning of the war. What do you all make of this particular incident? Well, based on what I'm seeing, I try to keep an eye on some of the Russian social media channels. It's fascinating because, again, it points to this undercurrent of complaint that this operation has been mismanaged, that this is the result of corruption and favoritism in the Russian military, that officers and general officers are not being held to account for their mistakes. And then, of course, we saw the defense ministry coming out and essentially saying, well, this was the fault of ordinary soldiers using their cell phones, trying to shift the blame away from the senior leadership. But there's definitely a sense in my read, and this isn't, by the way, necessarily always a good sign, because these are some people who are urging that Putin and his team have been too soft. They haven't really unleashed the hammer on Ukraine that they should have. The sense that uh, this is the corruption catching up. This is the favoritism in, in how the Russian military is run, where there is no accountability for mistakes. And it's leading to a sense that right now it's still an undercurrent. But if the Kremlin continues experiencing setbacks in Ukraine, if there's another successful Ukrainian counteroffensive later on, probably, you know, in early spring, that really retakes parts of the Black Sea coast back from the Russian forces, that could lead to some real political problems for the Kremlin. 
Add to that the rumor mill starting up again about Putin's health, that he hasn't made some appearances that he was expected to do, that some of the footage of his recent appearances, again, is showing perhaps signs of illness. And if you're throwing in a succession crisis on top of this, all bets could be off in this year for what's going to happen not only to the Russian position in Ukraine, but what happens to Putin's government and Putin himself personally. But also from the ground up, I want to say these are young soldiers, right? They grew up with phones. You cannot take their phones away from them. And I know it could be a blame shift. Oh, you know, it's their fault. It's not the leader's fault. Okay. But also there's no control over how people use their phones, right? That's true here. That's true with your kids, right? And that's true with your soldiers. And using them to take videos, to talk with their loved ones back home, you're not going to be able to stop that. You know, we have... Thanks to Elon Musk, the Starlinks, you know, so he did one good thing maybe last year, aside from his other meltdowns. Here's this technology, and we cannot talk enough about this technology on the ground and what it's able to do and connect people to say where they are, and then unfortunately to be tracked, right? To be tracked directly, but also to communicate, and the Ukrainians are using that. So I don't know if you know about this, but there's this project that they created targeted specifically at Russian soldiers called the I Want to Live Project, where you can call this number, you know, on your WhatsApp, on your Telegram account and safely surrender to Ukrainians because you don't want to fight for Russia anymore. You don't believe in that. And they've actually had 4,000 requests to surrender that have been successful. That is all through technology. And that is all because you can't take these devices away from people. Are the soldiers who sign up for that program promised to not be given back as part of a prisoner swap or like, how does that work? Right. So it's different based on what level you are and what level of knowledge you have in the military. So it's very individualized and the request kind of comes in and then it gets filtered to each part of the Ukrainian ministry that would be responsible for whatever kind of information they're able to offer or deal they're willing to give. Yeah, because we've heard some real horror stories about Russians who surrendered and then get sent back as part of a prisoner swap and it doesn't go so well for them once they get back to Russia. Well, speaking of a prisoner swap, one of the things we talked about to speak about today was the Ukrainian wealthy. And so... Well, I was going to ask you about that because as a journalist, Tatiana, you really, you know, initiated coverage of the billionaires and their role in this. So please tell us. Well, so first of all, there's still billionaires in Ukraine, right? So they weren't billionaires yesterday. They've been billionaires for the last 25 years and they've hidden all their money, you know, also in the United States. So yeah, these are smart people who, yes, maybe their net worth is down, but they're not suffering. I'm not going to start crying. You know, don't cry for Ukrainian billionaires. Or, <laughs> but who I wanted to mention in this prisoner swap, very wealthy Viktor Medvedchuk was a Russian supporter and Putin supporter and, you know, in the beginning of the war, still very pro-Russia, was charged because Zelensky has really taken a hold and tried to change and reshape the economy to de-oligarchize it. That's a long word, de-oligarchize the Ukrainian economy, which was very dependent upon a small number of individuals that ran everything from media to steel to pharmacies. I mean, everything. So if you think about, you know, the positive impacts on Ukraine's future from the war is this opportunity to reshape the distribution of assets so that they are not in a couple of people's hands. And so Medvedchuk is one of these people who was ultimately arrested by the Ukrainians and then given to Russia in a prisoner swap. Nobody knows where he is, to your point about Russians 
Ukrainians who supported Russia being returned to Russia. Nobody knows what's happened to him. So we will see. At the moment, the only thing we know is his $200 million super yacht, the Royal Romance, is being auctioned off to benefit Ukraine. Sounds like a plan to me. What's happened with some of the other billionaires and how has the wealth that they've accrued impacted Russia's invasion? Well, you start with Renat Akhmetov, who is Ukraine's richest, still Ukraine's richest, had the most assets, but had the most assets in Donbass, in the east. And those assets in Mariupol, you know, have been completely devastated. However, he's in Kiev, purportedly supporting the war effort. He's supposedly given over $100 million. He's working with Zelensky. In fact, aside from this Medvedchuk character that I mentioned, all of the other billionaires have really fallen into line with Zelensky. Why? they don't want their stuff taken away from them. Mansions, artwork. So even people like the former president Poroshenko, all of a sudden, all of his television channels are pro-Zelensky, right? So they've all fallen into line. Yes, of course, the Ukrainian GDP just came out, is down 30% year over year. Many people expected it to be more. In that respect, you know, hey, Ukraine is surviving. And the billionaires that are left are falling into line behind Zelensky, are supporting the war effort. I mean, Viktor Pinchuk is selling one of his paintings for $12 million. Everybody is trying to get in line to speak here in the U.S. Poroshenko was just here speaking to Congress on behalf of the Ukraine. So there's all of this concerted effort, which is so interesting when we see our billionaires here in the U.S. so divided politically. And they're... They've all fallen into line, aside from those few who were pro-Russia. And of course, Kolomoisky is his own person. He has been indicted in the U.S. for money laundering. But that's what I was trying to tell you. There's a lot of correct money here from Ukrainians in the United States, which I'm sure we'll be hearing more about as the dust settles here on this side, because I feel like the U.S. is strengthening its money laundering regulations and is going to go after these characters. Interesting. Nick, I want to turn to you. On something else, the New York Times recently reported that a senior Ukrainian intelligence official said Moscow has enough missiles for two to three more large strikes and is rushing newly produced munitions into service. What can we expect from Russia's increased use of slow moving Iranian drones? And is this all good news for Ukraine or is this just something to watch? We need to be careful about some of these pronouncements. You might have seen, it's been turned into a meme now, which is the headlines every two weeks, Russia's running out of missiles. We were hearing that back in April, May, June, July, August. It speaks to the fact that, first of all, there's a lot about the Russian defense industry and its shadowy links, not only inside of Russia, but what it has been doing externally for many years in places like Iran, where we just don't know or we don't really have a good handle. First of all, I'm always loath now to accept when someone says, well, Russia has definitively run out of something because we've been surprised now so many times. My sense is that the Russians had an enormous stockpile, much bigger than we expected, and partly just because we mirror imaged. We have moved to just-in-time, tight supply chains. We don't like to stockpile, and so we assume that everyone does that, whereas the current Russian establishment is the heir of the Soviet establishment, which stockpiled galore. And I think that they had been building stockpiles for years of weapons that I think Putin, I think we're going to go back now and see that the plan plans for some of these operations were probably in the works for many years, and Putin had designated the military industry to start producing, even with all of the corruption, which has also been coming out about how much of that was siphoned away. 
I think there was a pretty good stockpile. What we're seeing with the Iranian things now, again, is some of this is, of course, indigenous Iranian production, but there's also been a long history of the Russian involvement with Iran's defense industries, defense cooperation, and the same thing as with the North Koreans as well. This is, in, in a way, a repatriation of Russian military stockpiles back to Russia from where they were in other places. The Garan drones that the Russians have been using, the Iranian-produced systems, look, they're effective for what they're intended to do, which is what we see when they're done in places like Kherson, Zaporizhia, in Kharkiv, in Kiev itself. These are designed to create mayhem. They are designed to disrupt the normal fabric of life. Tatiana referred to earlier the large number of Ukrainians that have been displaced into Europe. That's been a deliberate part of the strategy both to depopulate Ukraine, but also to increase the stress on Europe. So the use of these systems doesn't necessarily reflect that Russia is losing capability. It's a sense that they can achieve their objectives. You know, you may remember the old anecdote about the difference between NASA and Roscosmos, where NASA spends millions of dollars to develop a space pen that can work in zero gravity, and the Russians use a pencil. And I think this is a case where the Russians are realizing that they don't need to use Calibers for some of the strategic objectives and that the Iranian drones. So what my caution to your question would be is, because we're seeing more Iranian drones being used, we can't automatically assume that that means that they've run out of Kaliber missiles and other ones. And also their ability to retrofit. Some reporting coming out that they're testing kits that will be able to take Soviet-era munitions and turn them and be able to use them for, you know, standoff operations, taking sort of older Soviet dumb munitions. And here, I'm not using this to cast aspersions on our friends in India. But one of the things that the Indians have successfully done over the years is to show how you can upgrade Soviet-era equipment so that it has more of a punch. And because of those linkages back and forth between the two countries, I wouldn't be surprised if there are Russian engineers who haven't been learning the lessons from their Indian counterparts who have been spending decades tinkering with Soviet-era military equipment to make it more effective. So I know that there's always this push to try to say the Russians are finished, the campaign is over, they're running out, and then we can all breathe easier. But the pessimist in me or the fatalist in me says it's a premature to make those definitive statements. So like the pencil cup is still pretty full. I would say it's fuller than we think. And again, their ability to continue to draw and then, of course, finally, you know, one of the things that we may find it more difficult is at what point are factories in China, which are licensed to produce Soviet-era Russian licensed military equipment, quietly going to be able to supply Russian forces? And, you know, unless the Ukrainians find a tail fin of a missile in characters, we're not going to be able necessarily to tell the difference. So I do think that the Russians have some reserves there. I always hearken back to what the Germans did in the 1920s, which was their factories in Germany were being inspected and they were building their military factories in the Soviet Union to stockpile the tanks and planes and other things that enabled the Wehrmacht to get a jump on us in the 1930s. Well, I want to ask both of you, finally, you know, is the United States, are we sending them enough equipment do you expect to see us send new things, tanks, et cetera, aircraft? What can we expect? Tatiana, I want to go to you first. 
I don't know what is being discussed. I did hear so or see a headline that Biden was thinking of kind of upping some of the tank in that same thing coming out of France and Germany, thinking about sending more hard, you know, equipment. What I do think the Ukrainians are doing is focusing on drone innovation. There's a big drone innovation center in Ukraine, which, you know, yes, maybe we don't want to always talk about drones, but I do think looking at kind of the next generation of weapons is also where this war is taking us. So I do think that behind the scenes, you know, it's not just using what they have or what it, people are also investing in. And, and certainly our military is interested in investing in these types of new ideas and, and forward thinking AI weapons. Right. And I think that we should be looking at that area a little bit more. You know, this idea of smart weapons, you know, everybody talks about the nuclear threat. That's very real and very important. We cannot forget that, right? I mean, I had at the start of the war, all my students were asking me where the bomb shelters in New York City were, right? They are still asking that. So that is a very real threat. But I think what's maybe not being talked about enough is the artificial intelligence, smart weapons, how do you robotize drones and what damage can that potentially cause? And the Ukrainians are already investing in that. And I'm sure, you know, there are efforts underway that we don't know about because they haven't been reported yet. Nick? Look, I think that the Biden administration has to balance what it can give Ukraine with two imperatives. One, and Tatiana has already alluded to this, is you know, we do have to be concerned about escalatory risks. There is a point at which is there a weapons system that would be provided to Ukraine that would push the Russians into a corner and have them escalate more. The other thing, of course, is that the defense industries of the West are not used to producing at a wartime tempo. You know, we have this great announcement, I think it was Sweden, that they're going to 10,000 artillery shells. You know, that's a day of what Ukraine uses. Our industries have been slow to gear up, and I think that there is a concern that, you know, how much can we give Ukraine? We're keeping an eye on what's happening in Taiwan. Obviously, the Taiwanese have been concerned that things that they've ordered for years that are still on back order that now are not going to be fulfilled this year or next year because it's being diverted to Ukraine. So some of that, I think, is this, we want to give them as much as we can. We're still keeping an eye on the escalatory risks, and we're still keeping an eye on the risks elsewhere. But on the good side, maybe good isn't the correct adjective, but I mean, on the sense of effectiveness, though, is that we have seen that the aid that has been given, the training that has been given, validates the steps that starting with the Obama administration, continuing through the Trump administration, and then into the Biden administration, that working with the Ukrainian military after it purged itself of its corrupt elements after 2014, has paid off. And certainly for those who have been arguing that the U.S. can't train and equip security forces after the debacle in Afghanistan, Ukraine really is the corrective to that. So certainly I think they would like more. That's going to depend on how quickly our industries can gear up and, of course, what happens in other parts of the world, too. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. The doorstep meets the truth of the matter, Tatiana, Serafin, Nick Grostev, thank you so much for being here today. I know we're going to do this again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 